So we are starting our new series today that we're calling Remarkable. A uh, little, little cheeky term there. If you look closely, you can see that the word Mark is in there as well. This is a series about just going through the book of Mark. Uh, we wanted to this year do a couple series where we're actually just going through a, a book of the Bible. We'll do another one in the fall. And uh, this, this series here is gonna take us up all the way up to Easter. And uh, what we're gonna do is we're just gonna take four sermons out of the book of Mark, uh, the, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and, uh, and share them on Sunday mornings. I'm actually really excited about it. I, I love the book of Mark. Uh, there's a lot of great things about it. Uh, they say it's, it's general consensus that it was the first gospel that was written. Uh, however, um, John Mark is the one that wrote it. They, they shortened his name for the gospel. His, name, his full name was John Mark, but it's Mark for the gospel. But if you know the story, if you know the life of John Mark, you know that he did not actually walk with Jesus. He wasn't one of his disciples. Uh, he would have been too young at the time. In fact, most people believe that the, the one that was uh, that ran away when Jesus was arrested and they, they tried to seize him, but he ran and they took his, they took his clothes and he was naked. They, most people believe that was John Mark. So that was his experience with Jesus. Uh, but uh, most people feel like and believe that this is probably the account of Peter. Uh, since Peter does not have a gospel, but Peter was with John Mark, um, they believe that he probably narrated this and Mark's just the one that penned it out. So this is probably Peter's uh, experience with Jesus. And uh, it's a great book, and I'm really excited. I'm excited for today. I feel like I have a, a good word for you this morning. And with that being said, I'm gonna jump right in. Uh, we're gonna read our text verse together. So I'm gonna ask you to stand with me, if you would, please. As we like to do here, we stand for the reading of God's word. He deserves it. And if you don't have a Bible with you, the, the, the passage will be on the screen behind me as well. Uh, this is out of Mark 8, and this is right after Jesus had fed the 4,000 with seven loaves of, of bread and a few fish. And um, huge miracle that he did. They got in a boat and went across the lake and then they were over there and they got in a boat again and were back on the lake. And this picks up where, while they were on the boat. It says, starting in verse 14, it says, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for the one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Some versions say beware. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we don't have any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Jesus is expressing a little bit of frustration with his disciples here. And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 12, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? That's the question for us today. In fact, that's the title of my message. Do you still not understand? Would you pray with me this morning? Our wonderful, gracious, loving, compassionate, merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for the, the Bible that is written so that we can know you thousands of years after you were on this planet. God, what an incredible blessing and privilege we have to know you. And Lord, as Kel was saying earlier, we wanna be like you. So Lord, would you do your work in our heart today that only you can do. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you, you can be seated. So have you ever had a conversation with someone and a good bit into the conversation you realized you were completely lost? where you, and, and it's too late into the conversation to actually tell the other person that you're lost because you've been giving some affirming head nods. And uh, in fact, in the middle of one of those affirming head nods, you asked yourself, why am I nodding? I have no idea what they're saying. 
Uh, I know every man in this room has done that. And if you're a husband, you've probably done it this week. Uh, we are pretty good at that, <laughs> at being there, and, but kind of zoning out. You know, like, I know I'm here, and I know I'm listening, and I can see you, but what you're saying just is not computing with me. Uh, we've all been there. We've all done that in our life, and uh, probably more frequently than we care to admit. And that's kind of what's happened here with the disciples in this story, where Jesus is confronting them because they have experienced so much with him, yet when they responded to the fact that they didn't have any bread and Jesus started talking about yeast, they thought, oh, he's upset because we don't have bread. And Jesus is saying, do you seriously still not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but don't see and ears but don't hear? He actually, he actually borrowed that from the prophecy that, that, or from the prophet Isaiah that was given hundreds of years earlier when Isaiah was expressing the, the voice of God to the children of Israel saying, you have eyes to see, but you don't see. You have ears to hear, but you don't hear. And you have calloused, hardened hearts. This was the judgment of God on the people of Israel way back in the day of Isaiah. So Jesus is taking what was said back then. He's applying it to them today. And he's saying, do you seriously not, still not understand? Do you not understand or know who I am or what I'm capable of or what my character is or what you should be concerned about in this life? And it seems to me like is a, you know, kind of a cursory reading of this that, man, Jesus was being pretty harsh on these guys. You know, he's being a little bit unfair. I mean, these are not some fringe guys that just happened to be on a boat with Jesus. These were his disciples. These were the ones closest to him. These were the guys that gave up their lives to follow him. They gave up their livelihood. They gave up their jobs. They gave up their families. They gave up more than most that would ever give up even in the future to follow and walk with Jesus. So these guys actually really loved him and they believed that he was who he said he was. In fact, just a little later in this exact same chapter is when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. So these guys were in relationship with him. They knew him, yet Jesus is looking at them saying, are you serious? Do you still not understand? And I think for some of us, for all of us really, if, we're a, if you're a Christian in this room today and you would say that you know Jesus, it can become very easy for us, even though we have experienced the mercy, the grace, the compassion, the forgiveness, the faithfulness, the goodness of God in our life, for us to still deal with the same fears and anxieties and worries and sins in our life that we've been dealing with for years. Even though we've experienced God's faithfulness, we've seen his faithfulness in a situation in our life, yet when we come up to another situation similar to it, we go right back to the old habits where we worry and we stress out and we have anxiety. And Jesus would look at us and say, do you still not understand? You've seen my work in action. You've seen me feed the 5,000. You've seen me feed the 4,000. You've seen me heal the leper. You've seen me open blind eyes, open deaf ears. You've seen me do all those things, yet you're still worried about food. When you know what I'm capable of, he's rebuking his disciples. And today for us, this is not meant to be a rebuke, but it is meant to be a strong encouragement for us that we would take this to heart and understand what Jesus is doing here. It's not like he's asking us to understand everything about the character of God and understand everything even about the word of God. I've, I've read through my Bible many, many, many times and there's still many places in my Bible that when I get to that point and I read something and I think, huh, that's weird. I don't get that. I mean, we kind of joke about it on staff sometimes. Like, I think Jessica actually writes in the, in the margin of her Bible, that's weird. 
Um, I, I'm, too, I'm too holy and justified to do that, but um, no, I'm just kidding. I, I've done plenty of notes that if you saw them, you wouldn't know what they meant. But, but the idea is that, you know, when I think about, I, I was just thinking through this this week, and I mean, it just instantly many, many instances come up to me that I think, I just don't understand that. How, how Saul was able to bring Samuel back from the dead using a witch. That makes no sense whatsoever. I, I, I read that and I think, that's weird. Or when, and you look in the New Testament, the new church, the early church, and Ananias and Sapphira, and they sold some land, and they brought some of the money from that land and laid it at Peter's feet. That was not a requirement. They did it because they wanted to help the church, help the early church, help the apostles. And then when Peter says, is that all the money you got for the land? And they lied and said, no, God struck them dead. Now, let me tell you, if God struck all of us dead for lying about how much money we have, we'd all be dead. Every single one of us. Usually we lie on the, on the other side of that, how much money we have, but, but it just, there's a lot of things that we aren't necessarily going to understand completely until we see Jesus face to face. And even then there'll probably be some things we don't understand because we still don't have, we're still not this infinite, eternal God like God is. So it's not like he wants us to understand every single thing, but he also says there's no excuse to not understand his character in our life and what he is capable of, especially if you've been a, follower of Jesus for a while and you've experienced his faithfulness, you've experienced his power, you've experienced his mercy and his grace, and you know that he loves you, you know that you are his child and that he disciplines those he loves. When we know all those things, yet we still fall back into old habits and fall back into old patterns like the disciples did here, Jesus would look at us and say, do you still not understand? See, Jesus was adamant that we understand what he's talking about. So what I wanna to do today is let us have a, a bit of an understanding checkup in our life. And in this passage, Jesus mentions uh, two specific groups that we are to beware of, to be careful about. He says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, if you're not familiar with the word, you're not familiar with scripture, that could seem like a very odd statement for Jesus to say. To say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. But what, if you understand and you, and you research this, you look into it, what you see is that, first of all, the word yeast, some translations it says leaven. But what this word really means is it has nothing to do with bread. It has to do with corruption. It has to do with moral corruption. In fact, the definition of this word used in this context is moral corruption viewed in its tendency to infect others. So Jesus is talking about a moral corruption that has a tendency to infect others. So when you read it in that context, Jesus is saying, watch out, beware of the moral corruption that can infect you. He's saying, be careful. He's saying, don't be passive or lazy about the moral corruption that can affect you in your life because it is very real and it has a very real ability to affect you, to affect those, even those closest to Jesus. This was not a sermon Jesus preached to the masses, church. This was on a boat with his disciples, those that loved him, those that were close to him, those that gave up more than you or I will ever have to give up to follow Jesus. He said, watch out, watch out for the moral corruption that can infect your life. That is a word for us today. That is a word for the church today and every day. That we would be careful, that we would watch out. And he says, watch out. So what are we watching out for? We're watching out for the corruption that can easily 
infect or affect us. Where's this corruption coming from? Well, he says it right there. He gives us the two major players when it comes to the corruption, the moral corruption that can infect your life and my life. He says, beware of the corruption of the Pharisees and that of Herod. The Pharisees were the religious nuts of the time, okay? For lack of a better term, they were crazy religious. They, to be a Pharisee, you had to have memorized the first five books of the Bible. That is a lot of memorizing. These people were incredibly devoted. They were incredibly devout. They were very strict in what they did, but they were religious. They weren't really followers of Jesus. In fact, the Pharisees hated Jesus because he was a threat to their way of life. He was a threat to what they were doing. These Pharisees were hardened, they were blind, and they were deaf spiritually. That's why Jesus says, are your hearts hard? Do you have ears but can't hear? Do you have eyes but can't see? Because that's how the Pharisees act. They act a certain way, they have a certain posture, but they're far from me. And he says, beware of their moral corruption in your life. And then he says, beware of the corruption of Herod. Herod was the king of Judea at the time. He was very powerful. He influenced culture. He influenced everything. He, had, he was the leader. He was over everything. So Herod represents culture, represents the world. So we look back at that verse. It all makes perfect sense now, doesn't it? Jesus is saying, beware of the moral corruption that comes from religion and the world. That's what he's saying. Beware. Watch out. Be careful. Know that it is very, very real. It's not something for those fringe Christians to have to deal with or the ones that don't really love Jesus but they're just wanting to be a Christian so they can go to heaven. It's for everybody. It's for those that are closest to Jesus. In fact, the closer you are to Jesus, the more you need to be aware of it. The more you need to be aware of this corruption that can infect your life and can infect my life. We are not impervious to it. We are not, we are, it's not something that can't affect us because we read our Bible enough or because we have good enough church attendance, or because we give enough to church, or because we're nice enough. This is something that can affect and infect every single one of us, as long as we are human beings on this planet. And Jesus is telling us very emphatically, watch out, watch out. Do not overlook this, don't be passive about it. Don't think that if you turn a blind eye to it, it'll just go away. The, the thing that the, the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod wants most for you is to turn a blind eye. Because when we turn a blind eye, it has much more influence and impact in our life. So what I'm gonna do for the rest of my time here is to go through some of what I think is the yeast of Herod and yeast of the Pharisees that I think is prevalent that we deal with in our own life and uh, I pray will we'll give us maybe some illumination and encourage us and challenge us in our walk of faith today. And I'm gonna start with the yeast of Herod, even though that's what Jesus mentioned second, I'm gonna start with it. The corruption of Herod. He says, beware of the yeast of Herod. And I can tell you one thing that I think is one of the biggest things, and it, you could probably do a whole series just on the yeast of Herod, frankly, but I'm just gonna tell you, it's just gonna be one of my points today, so I'm, I'm only hitting a very, very small portion of it. But I also believe it's one of the most dangerous things that a Christian especially can deal with when it comes to the moral corruption of the world. And what, I'm, what that is, is the lie that a little bit of yeast is harmless. A little bit of the world's corruption won't hurt me. 
That is the lie that a, an overwhelming majority of the church has believed. That yeah, I mean, you know, we, we stay away from the big corruption. You know, I'm not doing the big stuff that the world would do, but the little bit of corruption, I mean, it keeps me relevant. I, want, I need to be relevant. I don't wanna look like some, you know, religious prude. I gotta be relevant. So what we do is we allow a little bit of moral, worldly corruption into our life and we justify it. And we think, ah, this is just kind of a little side hustle to keep me relevant in an otherwise completely devoted Christian life. And we believe the lie that it's no big deal, that it's okay to allow, those, to allow that corruption into our life. And I don't know what yours is. I don't know what that little bit of yeast from Herod is in your life. I know what it is in mine. I know the tendency that I can have to want to allow yeast from the world into my life, thinking that it can be harmless. And, I, and if you guys would sit and meditate on it for a minute, you could probably think of yours too. In fact, for some of you, it's probably glaring real bright in your forehead right now, and you're hoping nobody else sees it. <laughs> but it's something that we all have to deal with in our life. He called this corruption, this yeast, Jesus did, he called it yeast for a reason. I don't know a whole lot about yeast. When I eat bread, it usually comes out of a bag or through a window at a drive-through. So I don't know a lot about yeast, but I know enough to know that when yeast gets into a dough, it affects the whole loaf of bread. I've never seen a loaf of bread that half of it's like real flat because the yeast didn't get into it, and then on the other half, it's all raised up. I've never heard of that. I don't think it's even probably possible to do that. Yeast is not just something that is just a little thing. It affects the whole thing. In fact, the words of Paul are so good in Galatians 5. If you know the letter of the book of Galatians that he wrote to the church in Galatia, to the church, guys, this is not to non-Christians. He wrote this to Christians. He's rebuking them because they've kind of lost their way a little bit. Look what he says in verse, chapter 5, verse 7. He says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. A little yeast works its way through the whole batch. And so the lie of the, of the world, the yeast of the world is that a little bit isn't a big deal. A little bit ain't gonna hurt you. And Paul's saying the exact opposite here. He's saying it works its way through the whole loaf. What he's saying here is that when we open the door and we allow the corruption of the world into our life, what we're doing is we are opening the door so that this corruption can work its way through the whole dough, our whole life. And how many, how many of you have experienced that where you have given yourself to something thinking, eh, it's not that big of a deal, I'm still a pretty good Christian guy, I can, I can probably deal with this, and next thing you know, you're knee deep in it, and then you're waist deep, and then you're up to your neck in the corruption that comes from the world and from giving an open door and allowing it into our life. The word of God is very clear. You may be able to hold off for a minute, you may be able to hold off for a while, but eventually that yeast is going to work its way through the dough. It's gonna make you calloused, it's gonna make you justifying the things that you're doing, it's gonna going push you away from fellowship with God and cause you to be more about yourself. That's what yeast does. It works its way through the whole thing. There is no such thing as a little harmless yeast. In fact, the Apostle John tells us that our attitude towards yeast, and let's just be honest, yeast is about sin. 
It's about the things, those sins that easily entangle us. It's the sin that comes from the world. That, that our attitude towards that reveals what we really know about God and what kind of relationship we actually have with God. He says very clearly in 1 John 3, 6, look what he says. He says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So in other words, no one who just lets that yeast stay in their life and justifies it really knows God. If you really know him, that's not an acceptable answer for a follower of Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean you never sin if you love Jesus. Can I get an amen? Praise God that we can't, if we, if we sin ever, we don't, that doesn't mean we don't love Jesus because that means nobody loves Jesus. It doesn't, John's not saying here that if you struggle with something, if you fall into temptation, if you stumble, if you sin, he's not saying if you do that, that means you don't know God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you stay in this place, if you keep on sinning, that's the, the language he uses here. If you continue to sin, that means you're accepting it. You're accepting it, that little bit of yeast in your life, you're just accepting it and you're saying, eh, it's not really a big deal. And he's saying if you do that, if you stay there, that you don't really know him. In fact, in, in 1 John 1 eight, just a couple chapters earlier, he says this. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and truth, the truth is not in us. So John here is not even saying it doesn't mean you don't sin. It, it's not about whether or not I sin, it's our response to the sin in our life. It's all about our response, church. If we are just accepting it and we're making excuses and we're saying, well, you know, I'm just human. <laughs> I'm just, I'm a flawed person. I'm just a person. You know, it's not that big of a deal. I'm not perfect, guys. You hear the tone of that? The tone of that is justifying it. It's saying, you know what? It's just kind of who I am. I, I was just, I've been selfish my whole life. It's just something I have to deal with. And it's just kind of there, you know? I was introduced to pornography at a young age, so I just, I can't really kick it. It's just gonna be something that I'm just gonna have to live with in my life. I, I've just always been greedy. I've always loved money and I can't get enough. And so that's just kind of the way it is. We just justify it and we just allow that yeast, that moral corruption into our life without having the attitude that God wants us to have towards it, which is to hate it. God's desire for us is that we would hate our sin, is that we would look at it and it would be shameful to us to even try to justify it but that we would see it for what it is, that it is that thing that separates us from God. It is that thing that keeps us from fellowship with God, and we would approach it the way that God would want us to approach it, which I'll share here in a minute. But we don't justify it. We don't say, eh, it's just a little bit, it's not a big deal, because eventually it works its way through the whole loaf. And then when we do struggle with it, we deal with it the way that God would want us to deal with it. And we get that from the first chapter of Mark, in fact, these are the first words of Jesus in the book of Mark, in verses 14 and 15. It says, after John was put in prison, that's John the Baptist, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. Everyone say, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. It's a wonderful for that to be Jesus' first words in the book of Mark is beautiful because you know he's talking about salvation there. You know that that's the essence of salvation is repentance and believing in Jesus, amen? 
And, and we know that that's the, that's the gateway, that's how we get in. But I can tell you today, without question, that repentance and believing is not just for the moment of salvation, it is every moment after that point. We are created and designed to live in such a way that we live a lifestyle of repentance, that we live a lifestyle of believing. Because you and I both know if you gave your life and your heart to Jesus years ago, and maybe it was at an altar, maybe it was in your room, maybe it was somewhere else, and you, you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and you received his forgiveness and you gave your life to him, you know that that belief from that moment didn't go unchallenged ever since then. We all, that belief is challenged all the time, church. It's getting more and more challenged in our culture every day. You've gotta know why you believe what you believe today. Because if you don't, it'll get squashed. And it's the same thing with repentance. The initial repentance starts on the moment of salvation, but it continues on after that every day. We would live lifestyles of repentance. Repentance is not just being sorry for what you've done. Repentance literally means to turn around, to turn away, to change your mind, to go the other direction. And Jesus says, that's the approach that you are to have towards the yeast that's in your life. Not it's not a big deal, but that we would hate it, we would see it, and we would lay it down, and we would turn away from it and walk away. And let me tell you, when you walk away from that sin you just laid down and you turned from, chances are many of those times we're going to eventually turn back to it and pick it back up. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not speaking that over us. We can walk in freedom. There's no question about it. But there are sins in our life that are easier for us to go back to. And the key is not to when you go back to say, you know what, this is just gonna be my vice in life. It just is what it is. And it's no big deal. And you justify a little bit of yeast in your life. That's not the approach to have. The approach to have is if I picked it up again, then when I, I allow the Lord to convict me and I lay it back down again and I turn away from it again. And if I gotta lay it down and turn away from it a thousand times in my life, so be it. But don't ever get to a place where that is just okay in your mind and you think, you know what, it's not that big a deal. It's just not. The preacher thinks it's a big deal, but it's just not that bad. I'm not hurting anybody. You know, sin has nothing to do with whether or not you're hurting anyone. It has to do with whether or not you're grieving the heart of God, if you're going against his word, if you're going against his will and his plan for your life. That's what sin is. It has nothing to do with whether or not no one else is involved. If that's the case, if you live solitarily, you could never sin. It has nothing to do with that. It's about your relationship and your fellowship with God in your life. And repentance cannot happen until we own it, until we own our sin. Now, I'm not saying own it in such a way where you take it and you just hold it and cuddle with it. I'm saying owning it in such a way that I'm not minimizing it, I'm not negating it, and I'm not ignoring it. I'm owning it and I'm seeing what, for what it is, and I'm going to God and saying, God, this is my sin, and it, I, it's corrupting me, and I know I deserve judgment, but God, I'm asking and begging for your mercy and your grace in this as I lay it down, and I'm turning away from it, and I'm walking away. That's what repentance looks like in our life. That's the heart of God for every one of us. If you know the story of Jesus on the cross, then you know that there was two criminals that were uh, crucified on either side of him as well. And the, the gospels of Matthew and Mark, they both talk about the fact that both those criminals were hurling insults at Jesus. While people on the ground were, these guys were too. The one guy was like, hey, if you're the son of God, why don't you get us off of these crosses? And they were insulting him and cursing him and then it's Luke that actually shares, shows us that one of the criminals actually must have had a change of heart. Because one of the criminals changed his mind and realized who Jesus was. And it's actually a very, one of the most beautiful verses 
passages in all the Bible. In fact, I'm gonna read it for you out of Luke 23 and verse 40. It says, the other criminal rebuked him, rebuked the other criminal. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? Now listen to this, church. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, one of the best lines in all the Bible, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. So beautiful. But you know what's really interesting in this passage? You ever thought and asked yourself, why did Jesus say he could be with him in paradise? I mean, it's obviously, this is a story of salvation, right? This guy got saved at 11.59, right before he died. Incredible. The grace of God is, is exemplified in this situation. Why was Jesus able to pour out his grace on him and tell him, hey, you're escaping hell, basically, and you're gonna be able to be with me in heaven today? Why do it? Was it because, was it because this guy said that Jesus did nothing wrong? He said, hey, Jesus did nothing wrong. We're, we deserve what we got. Is it because he said he did nothing wrong? No. Is it because he asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom? Well, that's not it. There's a lot, most people, most people in the U.S. believe in heaven. And if you ask them, they would say, yeah, I wanna go to heaven. You know, they would say, Jesus, I, I really wanna go. Can I please go? That, we know that's not what brings salvation in our life, right? Just asking to go and wanting to go has nothing to do with it. This, this criminal in verse 41 shows us everything we need to know about what it takes to be a follower of Jesus. He says, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. This man owned his sin. He knew that he was a sinner. He knew that he was deserving of being nailed to a cross, of being beaten and dying a horrible, torturous death. He knew that he deserved it. He said, I am getting what my deeds deserve. And then he says, Jesus, will you remember me? That's why Jesus remembered him. Because he saw his sin. Church, that's what repentance is. That's what repentance is. It's seeing your sin for what it is. It's not making excuses. It's not saying that that's just how I am. It's not saying that it's somebody else's fault, that I was abused as a child, or my boss treats me unfairly, or these are the, these are the things that happen in my life. It's not making excuses. It's going to God and saying, this is my sin. Whatever you decide to do for, to me or for me, I deserve your, your, your uh, judgment. I deserve punishment. I deserve to be in the pit of despair, but I'm thanking you that because of your mercy and grace and because of what you did for me, that I don't have to stay there, but I can receive your forgiveness. I can walk in life. I can walk in freedom. I can walk in the truth that you designed for me to walk in. That's what repentance looks like. Praise God. And that's what he wants for all of us. That is how we avoid the corruption of Herod. It's not pretending like you don't have any sin. It's not, at least, it's not thinking that, well, my sin's not as bad as other people's. It is acknowledging it, owning it, and knowing what you really deserve for it, not just coming to God and saying, God, I'm sorry, I messed up again. That's not repentance. Or God, you know, you know, this is just my thing. I kind of keep doing this, so I'm just gonna start off every morning asking for your forgiveness just to kind of make a blanket cover over everything I'm gonna do today. That's not repentance. Repentance is literally laying it down and walking away from it and praying that God would give you the victory over it. And also believing that if God, if you go back to it, that you will never harden your heart to the place that you will not be convicted of it and just allowing it to stay there because it will infect the whole loaf in your life. 
So that's the yeast of Herod. Let me give you quickly the yeast of the Pharisees. And this as well could be its own series when we talk about the corruption of religion. And you might be here thinking you might be kind of new to this church thing, maybe even new to the faith and think, well, I, I thought religion was the good guy. Religion is not the good guy. Religion is what killed Jesus. In fact, religion has killed more people than probably any other ideology in the world. Religion is a killer. Religion is not the good guy. Religion is the enemy. Jesus came to defeat religion. He came to give us relationship with him. There's a very, very big difference. Religion is about rules. Religion is about doing things a certain way. Religion, and this is probably one of the biggest uh, yeasts of religion, is comparison. Religion brings comparison in our life. The yeast of the Pharisees is about comparison instead of transformation. You see, God wants to transform. Religion wants you to compare. Because religion would say, well, I mean, I'm not as high as the pastor, which is hilarious, but, but at least I'm not as low as that guy. I'm, I'm doing a lot better than that person is. As long as I got, you know, as long as I'm in the middle of the road somewhere, I feel like I'm pretty good. That's what religion does. Religion doesn't care about being transformed. It just wants to make sure it's better than most or better than some or feeling good enough about yourself to appease your guilt or to justify your actions. Religion is about paying penance. Religion is about saying a certain prayer a certain way so that because it's, that's the rule and that's the tradition and if you do it just like this, then God will forgive you. Religion is about the deeds, it's not about the heart. And transformation is about the heart. And God wants your heart. And he wants to transform your heart. But comparison is the enemy of transformation in our life. Comparison is the enemy of trans transformation in our life. See, the Pharisees were kings of comparing. They were the kings of it. They would walk into any room and they'd look around to make sure to see who in the room might be on the same level as them, which was not, didn't happen very often because they thought they were above everybody. And they felt high and mighty and they wanted to be honored and they wanted to be uh, distinguished and they wanted to look holy and they wanted to look righteous, yet their hearts were far from God. That's what religion does. It keeps your heart far from God. It just makes you look good to other people. You compare yourself to other people. Oh, I've memorized the first five books of the Bible. What have you done? It's okay if I do this. Obviously, I know the Bible better than you do, so if I do it, it must be okay. And you live comparing yourself to others. You live, you live being, uh, not being transformed because you're just worried about saving face and looking a certain way. And I can tell you, church, the spirit of the Pharisees is alive and well. It's doing really, really well. If the spirit of the Pharisees was a professional, he'd have a house on the beach, one in the city, a couple in, in, in a rural area. He's got a lot of land. He owns a lot of churches, actually. And he owns a lot of Christians. That spirit is alive and well. And listen, I'm not pointing fingers today. If there's any struggle I have in my walk of faith, it is the struggle of the spirit of religion. So I get it. Wholeheartedly, I get it. And if transformation is what we truly desire in our life, we have to stop comparing because comparison is the yeast 
of the Pharisees in our life. It is, the, it is the corruption of the Pharisees in our life causing us to just look at others instead of looking at just me and Jesus, looking at our relationship that way. You know, in Matthew 25, Jesus gives the, the, the scenario of the great judgment where the sheep will be separated from the goats. You know, the sheep are going over here to be with God and live in heaven for eternity, and the goats are going here to be separated from God for eternity in hell. And you know, when he's separating the sheep and he's putting the sheep over there, and if you could visualize him looking at a checklist of reasons why you would let people come over to the sheep side, I can promise you none of the things on that list are, well, your church attendance was better than him, that's good. Uh, you read your Bible more often than that guy, so that's good. Uh, you gave more money in church than that guy, so that's good. Yeah, you're, you're checking off four of the five boxes, so that's good. There's no comparing when it comes to separating the sheep from the goats. There's nothing to compare to. All those people that you can blame on this earth that caused you to live with this yeast in your life, they're not gonna be there. They're not gonna be there. You can't blame other people. It's gonna be your relationship with Jesus, how you lived your life for him. That's the only thing, the only comparison that is gonna hold any water when it comes to that day. And I can tell you what comparison does in our life, it causes us to focus a lot on our traditions and the things that we think are right and how we do things. And I'm not even talking necessarily about how we do church. I'm talking about how we live out this life of faith. The things that we've determined in our own mind, what we think this is the thing that I need to do to make sure that I'm good with God. And we, we sacrifice a lot of relationship. We sacrifice transformation in our life for our traditions. And I can tell you today, the enemy he doesn't care one bit about your, tra your traditions as long as you don't change. The only thing that threatens the enemy of your soul is when he sees transformed hearts. Because when we are transformed, there's no room for comparing. There's no room for looking down or judging other people. Because when you're really transformed and you really have allowed the Spirit of God to show you his heart and who, who he, how he looks at you and how much he loves you, but he really shows your heart, shows you how dark your heart really is without him. There's no time, there's no energy left to condemn other people. There's no energy to compare yourself with other people because you know, but by the grace of God, there go I. It's only the grace of God that has pulled me out of that pit of despair. It's not because I know how to do the Christian thing, it's because of the power and the grace of God in my life. That's what transformation looks like. But comparison, tradition, a lot of those other things just keep us from that because it focuses on me and how it looks for me and how it makes me feel in my life. And real transformation, I'm gonna bring it back again as I finish here today, bringing it back to repentance. Transformation comes from repentance. That's how we get it. Some of you are sitting here and thinking, man, I really wanna be transformed. I've asked God to transform me. I've asked him to do these things in my life. I really wanna love him more. I really wanna see my heart changed more. I'm tired of feeling you know, bitter towards people and all these things in my life, and I've asked him to transform me, and I'm just not seeing it happen. It could be in your life as simple, and I'm not saying it's easy, but the simple concept of re repentance in your life, where you've just allowed that corruption in and you just refuse to deal with it. You're asking God to, to bless you, you're asking him to transform you, but you don't wanna deal with this over here. Like, God, just leave this alone. I figure when you transform me, it'll deal with this. It's not how it works. You deal with this, you repent of this, and then you start seeing transformation in your life. Because when you repent, it, what it does is it molds your heart, it softens your heart, it keeps you 
moldable to him. It, it opens your eyes, it opens your ears to where you see that when Jesus is doing things, you can actually see it because you don't have this stuff over here that you're justifying in your life. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, look, this is a great verse. It says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. We need godly sorrow in our life because godly sorrow brings repentance. See, sorrow in and of itself is not enough. Sorrow is only good if it leads us to repentance because there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death. There's a great illustration, a great scenario where you can see it in the word, the difference between Peter, the apostle Peter and Judas, okay? These two guys have more in, more in common than you realize sometimes. Both of these men walked with Jesus. Both of these men loved Jesus. Both of these men rejected Jesus. Both of them did. Judas rejected him by accepting a bribe to hand him over to be arrested. And you know, if you know the story, you know what happened. Jesus gets arrested, crucified, and Judas is very remorseful for what he did. He has a lot of sorrow for what he did. In fact, uh, in Matthew 27, three, listen, look what it says here. It says, then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. And he threw the money back at them and said, I don't even want it, because he was so sorrowful. It says he repented himself. That word in the Greek is uh, metamelamai. I probably butchered it, but that's close to what it is. And that word literally is about self. It means that he felt bad for himself because of what he did. Even though he knew he made a mistake, he felt bad, but it was only this poor me. And that's what worldly sorrow does. Worldly sorrow makes us, puts us in a pit of despair that we feel like we can't get out of, like it's hopeless. And if you start to feel sorry for yourself, you feel a self-pity, you feel rejection, you, you make excuses, you, you think of every reason why this shouldn't have been happening to you, yet it is. That's worldly sorrow. And if you know the story of Judas, he went out and he hung himself. Worldly sorrow leads to death because he felt like there was no hope because it was all about him. It was all about him. He was feeling sorry for himself. But godly sorrow is the opposite. Peter rejected him too. Peter rejected him three times, denied that he knew him, started cussing. He said, I don't know this blankety blank guy. And it says that the rooster crowed the second time and he realized, remembered the words that Jesus said, you're gonna deny me three times. And it says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly, bitterly weeping. He was sorrowful too, but his sorrow was godly because he repented, he came back and Jesus restored him. See, godly sorrow leads us to repentance. Worldly sorrow beats us down. It makes us feel like I have no hope. I'm never gonna get victory. I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna have anything good in my life. I'm never gonna get anywhere in life because of all this stuff that's happened to me. And, and you know, I'm struggling with this because of what happened and you get into this self-pity and despair. And I can tell you today, if you are in self-pity because of the sin in your life, the yeast in your life that you don't feel like you can get victory over, over that is not godly sorrow, church. Godly sorrow does not bring self-pity, never. Now, I'm not condemning. There's not a human here that has not had self-pity, okay? We all deal with it, but we need to understand and know that you can't stay there. 
You can't stay in self-pity because self-pity does not make a change in your life. It does not lead to transformation in your life. It leads to deeper levels of despair. This is good truth for you guys. Some of us feel like we have to stay in self-pity because that's how we beat ourselves up so that we can make a change in our life. It actually works exactly the opposite. We don't have self-pity. We look at what we've done. We acknowledge what we've done. We take it to the cross. We bring it to Jesus. We say, Jesus, this is what I did, and I know I deserve death. I know I deserve torture. I know I deserve punishment and judgment, but I'm praising you and I'm thanking you because of what you did. I'm not gonna get that because of your mercy and your grace, because of your incredible love for me. It's the only reason I'm not getting it, so I'm not gonna sit in self-pity. I'm gonna rejoice in the fact that I don't have to be pitiful. I'm gonna rejoice in knowing that I can walk in freedom and I can walk in salvation and I can walk in fellowship with you. It only comes from repentance. One more quick thing. If you know the story of the prodigal son, and I, I've preached on this, everybody preaches on it, it's a great story. But there's something that I noticed about it and I shared this probably last year when I was sharing a sermon on the, the, the prodigal son, something that's overlooked all the time is that when the prodigal son went away, the father did not chase him. Church, we have to get this. The father did not chase the son. He had all the means to be able to chase him. He had all the, the, the love for his son that anyone could ever have. He could have very easily chased after him and brought him back. The father stayed at home. What brought the son back into fellowship with the father was repentance. It was turning around and it was coming back. The father's not chasing us in our sin. There's worship songs out there that talk about him chasing us. That's, that's an error because it's not true. He doesn't do that. This person was a son. This was a child of God. This is a Christian. In this story, this is a Christian. This is a man that knew Jesus, knew the love, was saved, and he decided to walk out into sin because that's what he wanted to do. He let the yeast of the world affect him and infect him in his life, and the father stayed right where he was. And it was when the repentance happened that the father saw the repentance and he ran and met him and he lavished him with his love and brought him back into the fold. Repentance is what brings us back into fellowship. Repentance is what transforms our life. Repentance is what gives us what we need to live this life. And ignoring and acting like the sin we have in our life is no big deal or even justifying it or making excuses because of what someone else did in our life that caused us to get to that place is not bringing transformation. It is keeping you out there in the world away from God. And if you wanna walk with him and you want that relationship with him, this is what's so beautiful about our God. It doesn't matter if you've done it a thousand times. He's still gonna run out and meet you every time. He's gonna run out and grab you. He's gonna run out and throw the sandals on you and the ring and the robe and kill the fattened calf and he's gonna welcome you back in. But you've got to make the first move. You've got to be the one to make the first move. Stand with me, please, church. Now listen, I'm gonna pray for us. And as we pray this morning, this afternoon, I want you to just take a minute and I want you to acknowledge the yeast that you have allowed in your life. Please nobody, if you can, please don't leave just for a minute. This is important. Acknowledge the yeast, whether it's of the world or whether it's of religion, whatever it is, acknowledge it. Not out loud, we're not here to shame anybody, but just have a conversation with God. Let him show you where you have allowed the corruption of the world to come in and where it is affecting and infecting your life. And let's give it to him today. Let's give it to him today, church.
Just tell him, tell him silently. I'm bringing my sin to you today, Lord. I am bringing the corruption, I'm bringing the yeast that I've allowed, where I've turned a blind eye, where I've justified, where I've said, I'm just not perfect. Or I've said, it's just not that big of a deal. Or I've said, it's not my fault. It's other people. I bring it to you today, Lord. I'm laying it at your feet. I know I deserve your punishment. I deserve your judgment. I deserve to be knocked down. But I thank you today that that's not who you are. I thank you today, Lord, that your grace is sufficient. I thank you that even though I do deserve anything I might get on the negative side, I'm receiving the positive. I'm receiving your forgiveness. I'm receiving your mercy. I'm receiving the transformation that I know you wanna do in my life. I am laying it down and I am turning around and I am walking away from it. And God, would you help me not to walk back to it? But if I do, Lord, I thank you that I can lay it down again. Would you keep my heart soft so that you can convict, so that you can prick my heart and show me where I have allowed the corruption in my life? Lord, I wanna be transformed. I want my heart to be more like you. I wanna walk with you, Lord. I don't want you to look at me and say, do you still not understand? I wanna know you in a greater capacity, in a greater way that the Spirit of God would live in me and through me and overflow out of me, that I would walk in holiness and righteousness and forgiveness and grace and mercy that my heart would be to bring other people with me, that it would be to raise people up, not to condemn, not to look down, not to compare. Lord, we come against comparison today in the name of Jesus. We know it is nothing but a religious spirit that brings that into our life. We stand against that today, Lord. We stand against the condemnation that the enemy has brought into our hearts and in our lives that's made us feel like you're not gonna forgive us anymore because I've had to ask you to forgive me too many times. Lord, we stand against that today because we know the truth of your word is that there is no end to your grace. There is nothing on earth or anywhere under the earth, around the earth or in heaven that can separate us from your love for us. And we we rejoice in that today, Lord. We rejoice that it is, we are not gonna be defined by our sin. We're gonna be defined by your grace. We rejoice in it. We love you. We thank you for it today, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your love. Thank you, God. Help us to live lifestyles of repentance. God, we would not shy away from those things or think that if we don't bring it up, that maybe you won't think about it, but that we will be aggressive with it, that we will not be passive, but we will watch out for the yeast of religion and of the world. Help us, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Can we praise God one more time? Thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord.